thing that could have happened to you and you're too stupid to realize it. Are you kidding me? You are the worst thing that happened to me. And before you came here, I was a happy man. You honestly believe you were happier before you met me than you are now? Hell yes! How do you think it feels to be attracted to someone that makes you sick? <laughs> I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'm never going to stand for I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps, I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we have reached episode 30. It's a very special time. Amy, what are we talking about? The tension is breaking for our will-they-won't-they couples. Yeah, we have been following every 10 episodes of our podcast, the four most iconic will-they-won't-they couples in all of sitcomdom, right? Sam and Diane from Cheers, Ross and Rachel from Friends, Jim and Pam from The Office, and Jess and Nick from New Girl. We've broken it into five acts. So act one, meet cute, right? That was episode 10 of our podcast. We got to know everybody. They got to know each other. We set up the situations. Act two, episode 20 of our podcast was Tension Rising, right? We can't relitigate all of that, but the name, <laughs> the name says it all, right? And so now we're reaching act three. Now, my thinking is you look at the old, like the, the classical Shakespearean act structure, right? Act three is where the murder happens all the time, right? We just saw Julius Caesar performed as a musical, right? And act three is the assassination of Julius Caesar. Same thing with Romeo and Juliet. You have Mercutio and Tybalt dying in the middle and Romeo has to, you know, flee for, you know, go into exile. And so, yeah. That Everybody just needs to take a moment and reflect on Jay's in-depth <laughs> knowledge of Shakespeare act structure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I may have Googled a couple sexy. things to, uh, to, <laughs> to confirm. But yeah, definitely, because nowadays you don't have the five acts. Usually you have right. a three-act Hollywood script, which is everything is building and building towards a big climax at the end where we fight a giant robot. But... <laughs> Exactly. But yeah, the, the more classical structure is that in some ways, the end of the play, of course, you want to be the most exciting. But in terms of the action, in terms of the goings on, it's like everything goes down in the middle in act three. And then you spend the rest of the play sort of picking up the pieces. Right. And so I think that's what happens here. Yeah, that's what happens here. A lot of these shows, they couldn't wait very long, right? What we're going to see today is end of season one, kind of middle of season two, and end of season two. So everybody within the first two years just couldn't give up on this Will they, won't they? They had to make that next move. They had to move these couples into the next phase, which for a lot of the couples means they're going to start dating, like that they're going to now become an official couple. And so then after this, we're going to see what happens with that and the fallout of them trying to be together, you know, success or not. And uh, as you know, these are very popular shows, so we know how they go. 
Yeah, and then for some of the others, it's going to be more of like a final admission of feeling on both sides in a way that has been sort of unbalanced in the past. Yeah, and it's also notable that almost all of these are season finales or like penultimate episodes of seasons. So you definitely get that sense, kind of like in a movie where it's like, all right, the writers have, you know, put in everything they got. We've gotten you this far. You know, you're with us, audience, through all of this tension, and we're finally going to resolve it, and they get together. And what happens after that? And what do they look like as a couple? That's for another day. That's for us to figure out after we get renewed. And, you know, we're going to we're gonna figure that all out some other time. Right. And for most of these, they are kind of leaving it on that cliffhanger, right? Like, there is no, okay, now we're officially together, life's happily ever after. They just sort of end with the swelling of music and a makeout session. So, you know, the audience is left hoping, but with most of these couples, we we have seen this pattern before. There's been a kiss and then nothing happened, but this seemed to be bigger, which is why it ends the season, gets you to come back at the beginning of the next year, ready and, you know, with bated breath wanting to know what happens. Yes, and very much designed for that water cooler. Oh my God, could you believe that they started making out at the end of the episode? Or can you believe they finally kissed? What do you think is going to happen? And yes, exactly. Leaving on a cliffhanger. So what are the episodes we picked? All right. So we have a double episode of Cheers. It is their season finale, but it was run over two episodes. So season one, episodes 21 and 22, Showdown, part one and part two. And then Friends, season two, episode 14, the one with the prom video. The Office, season two, episode 22, Casino Night. And New Girl, season two, episode 15, Cooler. Yeah, so beginning with Cheers... At this point, we've covered it several times. We know it. We love it. The creative team of Charles, Charles, and Burroughs, they know how to make a sitcom. And, you know, we've talked about all the many ways that this is really a step above uh, the other shows of its time. This cold open, I will say, kind of deja vu, right? Last time we had a little funny scene about Diane just having come back from the Indian Film Festival and you uncultured slobs, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You think by Indian, I mean, you know, the Native Americans fighting John Wayne or something. You don't know anything. This time, she wants everybody to watch opera on television instead of the usual sports games and uh, the same old culture clash. Same old culture clash. She's, you know, she uses her eight syllable words to describe why it's worthwhile. And then nobody wants to watch it. And they all pretend to be asleep and give her a hard time. And she's like, come on, you guys, I always watch your sports. But so to me, it falls a little tone deaf, right? Who watches opera in a bar? Yes, I was thinking kind of the same thing that the first time it came across like, okay, different strokes for different folks. And, you know, you've got a fun little difference of sensibilities here. This time, it's like, yeah, you're you're it's it's hard enough to get like, let's say your significant other to watch opera in your house. You know, the idea of convincing a bar full of people when you work there, mind you, and they're paying customers that they all have to watch the Metropolitan Opera because you think that, you know, Ovid and the story of the rings is this transcendent experience. Like, yeah, the whole thing kind of comes across as 
she's the one that's a little socially off more than anyone else. Uh, Like out of touch, at least in this instance, for sure. So this episode, like most of them, is only a few episodes later than when we last left off with them. But it kind of seems like we have this very 80s-ish dynamic between Sam and Diane, where there's this sort of constant simmer of flirtation, right? He's sort of constantly hitting on her, And she kind of has this attitude of like, this is not real courtship, right? Right. And so if you really are interested in me, like you're, you're doing it all wrong and you're just kind of annoying me. Right. And she, I think in this episode, more than any of the others we've seen so far, they've kind of found their way in their stubbornness, right? So her whole point is this, if you want to be with me, the way that you are used to going about getting girls isn't going to work. You need to switch it up. And you know I'm interested in you, and I know you're interested in me, but you keep denying that you're interested in me and keep acting like you just want to bone me. And that's not good enough. I need you to put yourself out there. I need you to say you're interested in a commitment. I, but she doesn't say any of that in actual words. That's their problem all along, right? They never actually say what they mean and uh, and say what they're thinking. They always just like get stubborn and then insult each other. So we see that dynamic playing out through the entirety of these two episodes. We see Sam being a little bit vulnerable because his brother is coming into town and his brother is is this man of the world. He's very successful. He's well-read. He is musical. He is artistic and cultured. He's everything that Diane would ever want. And can we just pause on that for a second? Because I just want to sort of acknowledge the overlapping trope here, right? Because we're going to be focusing on Sam and Diane and their whole thing. But this is absolutely a sitcom trope. The overachieving brother that comes into town and the main character is very self-conscious and feels inferior. Uh, The examples that immediately leapt to mind were Josh Groban is Andy Bernard's brother in uh, The Office, you know, once they had gotten so big that they could have those sort of fun celebrity cameos. And so, of course, it's just a very clever casting idea where if you have this character whose pride and joy is his acapella singing and then you cast this guy who's just like famously the most talented you know sort of pretty boy singer crooner guy in the world and then Ron Belding in Saved by the Bell, Mr. Belding's cool, not bald younger brother that gets all the kids to think, you know, he's better, but then he turns out to be kind of a flake. So, uh, yeah, rich history of, oh, I guess nobody likes me anymore because I'm not as good as my brother uh, in the sitcom world. Right. Or my sister or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. The sibling that, you know, you always looked up to but can't look up to because you're jealous of and the Mm -hmm. whole inferiority complex thing. So that kind of kicks off at the beginning of the episode. Diane takes a phone call that we don't hear and she hangs it up and she's like, oh my goodness, you know, Sam's brother's going to be here in a few minutes. And everyone in the bar is like, oh, well, yeah, they kind of have this history. So Sam or Diane goes in to talk to Sam, who's in the office. And he's like, it doesn't matter. I'm over that. Like, I know what they're saying, but it's not that true anymore. You know, he is what he is. I'm going to be happy to see him. 
We, however, never get to see him. Yeah, when when he does show up and we have, you know, the entire bar full of people to a truly comical extent, you know, just celebrating and worshiping this guy yeah, for all different all reasons. They're all crowded around in such a way right. in all of the things that he's doing that we as the audience can never right. actually see a person. It's the right choice because, like I said, this this storyline about how much people respond to him is cartoonish in nature. So it is. it sort of matches the surreal tone of that story to have him be unseen. And then we, the audience, can kind of imagine like, oh, he's so beautiful and handsome that they just, any actor that they cast could not, you know, meet our, our imaginations. And so, yeah, we get hilarious moments with Norm coming in and going like, Sam, what kind of present could I, could I get for your brother to, to thank him for getting me a new job? You know, just everyone, you know, Cliff comes running in. Oh my God, he's got a tap dance, everybody, you know. And then, of course, the biggest blow is that he's taken a liking to Diane and invited her on a trip to Hawaii. Uh, Martha's Vineyard first. Okay. Yeah. So he wants to take her to Martha's Vineyard for the weekend. He owns his own plane and he has now just recently bought a new one. And so Diane wants to get Sam's approval. But really what she's seeking is for Sam to say, don't, you know, don't go. I... I don't want you to do that. Like, I want to be with you. She's trying to give him the opportunity to be the man that she wants him to be. And at every turn, he's just not doing it, right? So she comes into the, like, bar area out from the the pool room area. And he's like, you know, that's fine. If you want to go off with my brother this weekend to Martha's Vineyard, you know, have gr- have a great time. He's perfect for you. You guys are perfect for each other, you know, whatever. And and Diane's like, really? <sighs> okay. And turns to walk away. And then Sam like deadpans, please don't go. And then she turns around. She was like, what did you say? And so we, we get this like three times where he yes. says something that's like, I'll die if you go, you know, just really sort of straight and quiet as she's walking away. And it's played as though he himself doesn't know that he said it. You know, it's this weird like outburst, uh, this quiet deadpan outburst that he'll say, but then don't doesn't remember saying it, and then immediately oh, goes back so to. Oh, that's so funny! I thought he was like straight up gaslighting her. I right. thought it, he it was. Could like- be, yeah, it's debatable <laughs> whether he truly doesn't remember or he's playing it off that way. But in either case, that's that's what he says. Is right. that he'll be like, "What? What? I I didn't hear." Anything. What are you talking about? You're crazy. He he literally turns it around on her on her every single time. All three times it happens, he's like. You're hearing things like you're a nut. This is why we're not right for each other. Get out of here. You're crazy. Now, I will say, like, I I would submit this as one of the best sitcom scenes ever. I mean, at least that that we've watched together. I mean, it's just so their their relationship is so engaging. And like, you, you just get so invested in it and and frustrated on her behalf for his inability to communicate. And then when he does, you really feel for him as somebody who just does not have the mental or emotional equipment 
to do any of this, to, you know, be vulnerable, like you're saying, to communicate his feelings. And you understand they show you his stable of women that he has to amuse himself in her absence. He can make a phone call and in minutes have somebody, you know, leave her live-in boyfriend to come and sleep with him. And so you, you get the sense, like I mentioned last time, I think, that this guy has gone through his whole life and could continue to go through his whole life, never having to engage in this way. And so he just does not know what to do about these feelings he has. Right. And and we get a great scene where after that, you know, so this we get those three moments with Diane. And then as Diane's walking away, she says, I'd rather stay here with you and kind of turns it back on him. And he goes, wait, what, what, what? And she turns around big doe eyes. And she was like, what? Yes. Now that one is intentionally uh, giving him a taste of his own medicine. Yes, absolutely. And I think she was also doing like she also hoped that that her being vulnerable would be a good model. And you see that play out again in the second part, you know, in part two of Showdown, where she just she is a glutton for punishment when it comes to to Sam like she says goodbye 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 like she keeps leaving and keeps going back and keeps going back and keeps giving him another chance to like just be the guy that she knows that he is if only he could just get out of his own way but anyway after all of that she does leave he tells her he's got a date tonight so he doesn't care if she goes she does decide to go to Martha's Vineyard with his brother and it's the end of the night everybody's gone it's just him and Carla and we have this really great conversation between Sam and Carla Throughout this episode, we've been seeing more and more of Carla's now pregnant, and she is just, she always gives Diane a hard time, but in this episode, we've been seeing more and more her being like, what the hell? Like, this woman is not the end-all be-all. Why is everyone all, like, uh, worried about her? Nobody ever worries about me, you know what I mean? So we see a little bit of her soft side, too, Mm -hmm. which is, again, a good model of how to, like, talk about your feelings, And we see Sam and Carla able to have an emotional conversation that is safe for both of them. Yeah. And it's also an interesting moment of them pondering, you know, she asks him what's so great about her and he doesn't have an answer. He goes, you know, drives me crazy. Yeah. He he sort of played for a laugh because he goes, well, sometimes she's really annoying and infuriating and other times she just drives me insane, you know? And I think that it's true. What makes their relationship work is what happens when the two of them are together and the energy and that electricity and stuff. It's not things about them that are compatible. Right. They don't have anything that's compatible. Right. And that's the difference between Sam and his brother, because his brother, Derek, has all of the qualities that she's like, yeah, when I talk to him, we talk about Chaucer and, you know, highfalutin stuff. You don't talk about anything, you know, but... There presumably isn't that same spark of passion that comes from the, you know, 
animosity basically that that seems to happen whenever Sam and Diane are together and the sparks fly. Right. And I think anybody who is, you know, of a certain age who has lived a life and had relationships knows that these are the toxic relationships. Yeah. Like these are the relationships that you get into and you you destroy each other. You know what I mean? Like you are not good people together. In fact, you become the worst version of yourself when you're with this person. And that is what we're going to, you know, very likely see play out in the future of Sam and Diane beyond this episode. But so Carla and Sam have this great conversation. And Carla, even as she's leaving, she's like, you know, because they had this really, you know, heartfelt conversation. And she's like, how come we and I, like, you and I never thought yeah. about, you know, a thing? And he's like, honestly, Carla, you're too much woman for me. And she was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then she leaves. While we're on Carla, I just want to take a second to kind of. Talk about the the cast in general of this show. I really noticed this time because there's a moment where Cliff, I don't know what is happening in the scene, but it's a long shot of Cliff's face and you get to really take it in, you know, and I'm just looking at this guy, just thinking like, this is one of the most interesting, distinctive looking guys and his voice and everything. Like, what a unique presence that they found to play this mailman guy you know and of course that applies to carla and you just start thinking about even just the two shows that we've talked about so far that this charles charles and burroughs team have done taxi and cheers right now it's not cases like oh you know george clooney went from er to becoming like the world's most recognizable actor ever but you think about the staying power of some of the people that started on these shows right ted danson and shelly long obviously but woody harrelson danny devito tony danza kelsey Grammer, kirstie alley started on this like so many people they were just so good at finding these people that yeah, like they're not going to be the next leading man of the world, but they're these amazing faces and voices that are just like, oh, now that you found them, we will always have something for Danny DeVito to do, you know, because the guy is just so fun to watch. Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I just I was really kind of basking in that this time. Well, and. You know, we, we, we're going to see James Burroughs again in Friends. He's the director of a lot of the Friends episodes yeah. and um, Will and Grace. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we watched Will and Grace a few weeks ago. And that, too, he's the director of a lot of those episodes and especially the big episodes, right? Because at that point, he's like, you know, nearing retirement, but he just comes out and does the ones that he likes to do. Mm -hmm. So he has a really lovely ability. And there's a, a great AV Club article about Sam and Diane's relationship relationship. You know, if you're interested, do check it out. But they talk specifically about Burroughs ability to use the set to enhance the actor's physicality. And what we're going to see at the end of part two in the showdown is this massive ranging on, you know, multiple sides of a commercial break fight between Sam and Diane. And the whole office, they are not in the bar for this, the big open bar where there could be so many things going on. They're in the tiny little office and there's the couch and there's the 
the desk and there's a chair and that's all they have to work with. But the blocking around those furniture pieces kind of tell us, along with the actor's physicality, whether or not they're like close to maybe getting together if they're feeling or they're now fighting like in their back like on opposite sides of the desk or opposite sides of this chair. They have an actual obstacle in between them. And that's true in the bar too. Like anytime we have them in the bar, there's this, you know, oftentimes a whole length of a bar in between them, you know? So it's really, really interesting just to watch the actor's physicality because Shelley Long and Ted Danson play this tension in such a way they're not giving anything away on their faces except the anger that they're feeling at each other. But their bodies are giving it all away. They're so open to one another. They like, they get close to one another, even though that they don't, you know, they're mad. It's just, it, it it's, it's a masterclass. Yeah. And Danson is also just a good actor for, you know, because he's big and tall. And I don't know, I just, I feel like he has a good sort of like canvas to kind of like play with, with his body. But also with this show, the contrast between the scenes in that back office and the rest of them, you know, we always talk about how great Cheers and Taxi are for the living set. And you always see those people milling around in the background. So it gives it this warmth. So you really notice subliminally when it is just the two of them in that back office and it has a whole different feel, whereas most sitcoms, you're always looking at two or three people in a room by themselves, no matter what. Right. So that was the the Carla scene. She leaves. That's the episode or nearly the end of that first half of the, of the showdown, right? The first episode. Then we get the girl who shows up. That's going to be um, Sam's date. And yeah, she tells us that, oh, you know, mom, good thing my boyfriend's a, a heavy sleeper because she snuck out so she could go be with him. And then we get the beginning of the next episode where he's got a, gr- a different girl dropping him off after a long weekend together or something or a few days that they'd been, you know, together. And and all, the, everybody in the bar is like, ah, oh, Sammy, we don't know how you do it. That's so great to see you back on the horse again. Look yeah. at all these hot women. Woo woo. You're the man. You're the man. We love that you're a womanizer. Pew pew. Yeah, this would basically be called sex addiction in modern parlance. He's, <laughs> he's taking out his, you know, loneliness or his frustrations by just sleeping with as many women as he can. So yeah, he comes back and and Shelley Long comes back and they continue this sort of like, eh, I, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Yeah, so she, cause she comes back. She's been away. She did the long weekend with his brother and now it's been a week and she's spent, and somebody in the bar is like, Hey, how you doing there, Sammy? You know, uh, I know Diane's been out with your brother every night. He's still in town. So that's Diane comes back in. She's not in her work clothes. She's in a suit and this is telling us that something's going on. And so she is like, I need to talk to Sam. And then we find out that. Derek, Sam's brother, has invited her to go away with him. He is going back to Paris. He's going to be there for quite a while for business, and he wants her to come with him. And so this is this is it. Like this is she could leave the show and like yeah. go off with the brother or get with Sam and she's giving him one last chance. Yeah. She's giving him an ultimatum, but it's like a covert ultimatum that he doesn't even realize the consequences of. And so again, I'm going to say 
Shelley Long, even though she certainly has some good points about about Sam's overall behavior, she's she's not going about this the right way. You no, know, she's trying to play on his level in a way that doesn't work for her or him. But yeah, she announces to everyone but Sam, I am going to march in there and tell him that I am going to Paris with his brother. And if he does not stop me, if he does not actively object to my doing that, then I will take that to mean he's not interested in me and I will leave him forever. Now, is this before or after she has the conversation with Coach that kind of sheds a little light on Sam's like emotional origin story? So she comes into the bar and sits down at the bar and says, I want to have, coach, can we have a talk? And so it's immediately following that talk. She's like, you're right. He doesn't know how to express his feelings, but he's got to. He has got, if he wants to be with me, he has got to be able to say he wants to be with me. I'm like, I'm not just going to giggle and fall into bed with him. He's got to to tell me that he likes me. So even though she's had the conversation with Coach, she still is like, no, I still need him to do this. This right, is but important. that's an interesting uh, just sort of humanizing wrinkle, you know, because he says, he's saying something like, ah, yeah, I've been through Sam, through all this stuff, his divorce and his, you know, whatever the, the issues were. And he says... Alcoholism, that, the end yeah, of his career. Right. And he says, the tougher things got, the cooler he got, right? And so... Again, that's not that's not excusing anything he does, but you can see Diane kind of register a little bit like, okay, I guess I didn't think about that aspect of it necessarily, that he ha- that he is a guy that has been through a lot of stuff and this whole sort of man-child womanizing schmuck persona he's got, you know, this to an extent this was born out of Maybe not trauma, but but you know, uh, you know, shitty experiences. Sure, it is a cover, but she still wants to be. She believes that in order for them to be intimate and intimately connected, that he needs to be vulnerable with her. Yeah. Right. So, and Coach is trying to say he's like he's just going to get more chill, and she's like, okay, but. There's got to be, you know, at least one person that he is okay to be broken with. And that should be me. And that's what she's looking for. Yeah. So she does it. She knocks on the door and says, I'm going to France with your brother. His response is, I didn't need to hear that. Dot, dot, dot. So like a little bit of a fake out. Because it's too late to put a help wanted ad in tomorrow's paper. So he's basically saying, screw you, good riddance, get out of here. Yep. And she is, you know, aghast because she was not expecting that. And then doesn't let it go, you know, is like, okay, starts to leave and then turns right back around and is like, no, no, he's going to get cooler. He's going to get more chill. The worst things are like she takes the advice from coach. So she's like, let's go behind the closed door. Let's have a conversation. And so she tries again. And, you know, I don't like this, this same dynamic. She tries like five different times. (laughs) Yeah, I started getting frustrated at this point. I wrote these two deserve each other. There's so much. What were you going to say? You know, there's so much. Well, never mind. No, no, say it. You know, and yeah, like it just gets repetitive. Yeah. 
So we have this series of him, you know, blowing her off over and over again. Like she is trying to get deeper and he's like, you know, whatever. If you want to go, you need to go. And she's like, but I don't want to go. I'd rather be with you. And he's like, you know, doesn't even hear it. And is like, it, it always, anytime one of them is vulnerable, it like immediately somebody brings up something else from earlier in the conversation and then they start arguing again. So she keeps walking out the door, making these grand goodbyes getting all the way to the bar door and then turning back around and coming and knocking on the door and, and entering into the conversation again. And after the, the fourth or fifth one, she stops. Like, she stops saying goodbye. They they get to a point where he's like, I don't want you to go. Like, I, I don't want you to go. And she's like, okay, finally. So now the conversation twists and she's like, well, how are we going to do this? How are we ever going to be together? We have all of these problems. And what cracks me up about this bit is that from here to the end of this episode, any time, <laughs> by the way, it's been like 10 minutes, right? But like any time he does something else that upsets her, she's like, I can't believe I let your brother go for this. Yeah. And it's like, you... That you was, have not announced that decision yet. Like you did, you could still catch it. Like yeah. he wasn't waiting outside the door. You didn't have like a like if the time frame was only ten minutes, honey. He wasn't really waiting for you anyway. Yeah. But and this <laughs> isn't this is nineteen eighty five or whenever it is. She's not pulling out her cell phone and texting. Never mind. I'm, I'm not coming. Yeah, I've missed my deadline or whatever. No, it was so that made me laugh. But so but from there on, there's this definitive okay. Diane has now chosen to stay, and now she and Sam are going to have this argument around the the desk and the office and the chair and everything about why they're right for or wrong for each other. So like Sam goes in to kiss her and she's and he's like, I'm going to kiss you now. And she's like, well, you can't announce it. Yeah. What he says is maybe we should kiss. And right. we definitely want to flag this subtrope because this is going to come again verbatim almost in new girl that yeah it's it's this weird premeditated thing that becomes awkward and doesn't work right and she is objecting to it just like she objected to it in the last time in the last episode in many episodes throughout season one where she's just like no it can't be like this it has to be like this and he's like look you asked me to be vulnerable. I got as vulnerable as I'm willing to be. It's time for us to kiss now. Let's go. And she's just like, no, it can't be like that. So this is where she, you know, all of us are kind of on her side in that he is being, you know, closed off and a dick and like won't talk about his feelings. Now it shifts. And now she's being the one that's so annoying and is overthinking everything. And she got what she wanted. The guy is like, I like you. I want to be with you. And she's like, wait, wait, wait. Now everything has to be just so. Yeah, but it's also a little bit like, I guess you could take it as because he likes her so much, his usual tricks are maybe not going to work or he's he's a little flustered because I'm watching this going like, dude, you're supposed to be some kind of ladies man, Lothario. Let's see you. Let's see your game, you know? Well, let's but he's tried that in the past and it doesn't work. So he's trying not to do that. He's trying to like say, like do these other things, but then that's not like spontaneous or sexy enough for yeah. her either. So it's like nothing's good enough. What she says is nobody is swept away when they have the presence of mind to say, maybe we should kiss. Because he's yeah. like, I'm swept away. Let's go. Which yeah. mirrors what they said the last episode we watched of this, where he's like, I'm feeling it. Come on, you know, kind of a thing. 
Yeah. And I really got to say, just going back again to this comparison to theater, these scenes with the two of them in this back office, this one, and again, the last time, so much happens. Like you feel like you're watching like a little Tennessee Williams play in a black box theater or something. There's so much ups and downs in their dynamic. And so, yeah, in this case, it's like, okay, our little premeditated kiss didn't work. So now he's going to say, oh, maybe we should forget the whole thing. And then so, of course, we thrive on anger and tension. So the two of them are going to start getting angry. We've got that beloved old sitcom trope of threatening physical violence, right? He's going to say, I just want to pop you one, right? I want to, what does he say? I want to bounce you off every wall in this office. Yeah. Like she's so mad. And, you know, she's like, I'd like to see you try, you you know, and they're just like, with yeah. each other. But this leads to, I think, one of the most iconic exchanges in the series and in sitcoms in general, right? Because they're getting more and more mad. And then, are you as turned on as I am? More. And then and they, they start making- finally kiss. And so, but what we skipped over was like what you were saying. You like, there's so, it's like theater that we even get a break in the tension of that because they open the oh, office yeah, door and all of the patrons in the bar, like our whole rest of the cast, are like in the door frame listening, yes, in pressed a way up against the door. That would not seem possible in a live action production. Like it's you amazing. see all these all faces, the faces stacked up. All the way up to the top yeah, of the door like frame. Gumballs in a gumball machine. It's very funny. <laughs> it was amazing. But yeah, it ends uh just like we said before with that intense kiss, cut to black, episode over, see you next year. Yep. And so as an audience member who might not know what's coming next, it does kind of, it still might be up in the air. Like this was definitely a more significant, longer, bigger fight than all the other fights that we've seen them because they fight in every episode and, or nearly every episode, but then they actually got through it for the first time. They got all the way, like one of them didn't just walk out and the episode was over or something else funny happened out in the bar. They stayed in it. They stayed in the office. They stayed in the fight and they just finally kissed. Yeah. And with the sort of understanding, again, not that they're necessarily wearing each other's rings and our boyfriend and girlfriend, but like we're doing this to start something. Right. And Shelly Long says that at some point, like Diane says that during the fight, she's like, if we're going to do this, we've got to figure this out. And that, like I said, is the whole second half of the fight bit, because that's where the new tension comes from. Like, oh, okay, so we really are going to be together. Well, that's even scarier because we're not right for each other. So how is this going to work? And so the second half of the fight where Diane has now stopped leaving and saying goodbye is all just, you got a big fat mouth and, burr, you know, all of that anger about the things that they are that the other one doesn't like. Yeah. So we should move on to friends, but I just want to sort of flag that as we're going through all of these relationships and now you know we've been getting to know them for some time it's very clear that the sam and diane dynamic is built around hostility and tension and all of that and toxicity yes that (laughs) is the heart of their relationship which i think will be a contrast to to the other ones some of the other ones for sure Okay, moving on to Friends. This is season two, episode 14, the one with the prom video. 
So we're only about like five or seven or so episodes after the last one that we watched of Mm -hmm. Friends, where they have their big kiss in the coffee shop that's become iconic. But in the meantime, we've had the pro-con list. Okay, so I was going to ask about this. I watched Friends all the way through back in the day, but I don't remember the details. So this one, more than any of the other shows we're watching about, gave me that sense of confusion. It's like what people complain about in sequels, like Ghostbusters 2 or Alien 3, where it's like, happy ending last time, and everything worked out great for the protagonists, but now we're starting this one again, and all of a sudden everything's gone to hell, and we're right back where we started. Right. So what you missed in the interim is that pro-con list. So I think it is either the episode right after or two away from when Ross and Rachel have the kiss, the one where Ross finds out that he then has this whole, you know, because he's been dating Julie and he leaves Julie to come and kiss Rachel, right? But in that next episode, he's trying to figure out, you know, should I break up with Julie? This is a really good thing. This thing with Rachel, you know, it's been back and forth and back and forth. And I don't really know. And I don't want to hurt anyone, but whatever. And he writes out with Chandler and Joey's help, a pro con list. And Chandler's typed it up on his computer because they're like writing it down while, while Ross is just talking. And then Rachel comes in to Joey and Chandler's apartment and sees her name on the screen. And then she ends up getting it. You know, there's some physical comedy bits. She ends up getting it away from the guys, reads it. And of course, that's it. So the reference that we get in this episode to that is Rachel tells Ross when he comes and interrupts her having a conversation with a guy who's really cute, by the way. Yeah, there's a lot of cock blocking in this episode in all corners of the story. Right. So she's having a conversation with a guy. We've seen earlier in the episode that Ross is all like sad that, you know, men are calling her and that she's dating other people or whatever. He's all sad. So he goes up and he like interrupts this conversation and the guy leaves because this this other Ross is being weird. He's doing this whole routine of are you are you Rachel? Rachel Green? He's pretending to be, as as Rachel puts it, blind date guy. He's pretending to be a, a guy that she She's supposed to meet, you know, thinking that she'll go, oh, thank you. Yes, yes. uh, You know, I've been waiting for you. Right. But he didn't think that that was really true. He was just trying to come up with a reason to, like, interrupt this conversation that she was having. So she says, Ross, you and I are never going to be together because I find out you like me and I get clobbered. You find out I like you and I get clobbered. It doesn't matter. No, like every single time this starts to happen, I end up getting hurt. So we're not going to do it. We're not going to be together. And Ross walks away very dejected. Yeah. So if we were going on a more modular, you know, basis, this pro con thing would be one of the sort of obstacles you know like we've in a sense we've already had a mini get together breakup you know there's there's all kinds of ups and downs so yeah going into this we're back to her being single 
don't want to spend too much time on it, but Chandler and Joey have a funny B story where Joey has given Chandler this gaudy bracelet, and that's messing up Chandler's love life because when he goes to talk to women, they notice this ridiculous bracelet. So yeah, everybody's kind of unlucky in love at this point. So Monica is out of a job. Mm -hmm. She has been looking for a job, but she's getting to that point now where, you know, even though her place is rent controlled and she doesn't pay that much because she inherited it from like an aunt or something, she is not really going to be able to pay her bills. So she needs to ask her parents for some money. So she invites them over and they bring over a bunch of boxes from her old room because they've decided to turn it into a gym. And so then everybody's kind of going through the boxes and they find this old prom video. Right. Now we should just say before we get into that, just real quickly, it goes without saying, Elliot Gould as Ross's dad is like, the casting on that is just so perfect. You know, Elliot Gould was a huge star in the 70s, but, you know, for most of us, you know, sort of quasi-millennial types, this was, you know, one of our first experiences with him. Yeah, he'd go on to play the dad in many sitcoms. Yeah, but he just, that mellow voice, I I can't imagine David Schwimmer's real dad being as much like him as Elliot Gould is <laughs> in this part. It's very true. So anyway, so the whole gang is like, hey, let's watch this prom video. That'll be really funny. And Ross is like, no, 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 let's not watch it. And they're like, come on, what's your problem? Like, it'll be funny. Monica's like, yeah, I mean, I was like 400 pounds heavier than I am now. Come on, it's fine. And Ross is like, no, I'm good. I think I'm going to leave. And then he kind of hangs out by the door, like about to bolt. Right. While the whole cast is gathered and watching a prom video. And we get another overlapping trope of the flashback, you know, put everybody in funny wigs and prosthetics and make everybody young, right? We got Punky Brewster doing the old thing in the dream episodes. Now we have the Friends cast, at least a few of them in, you know, quote unquote, teenage form. Right. They're in very gaudy 80s prom dresses. Um, you know, this is the part, one of the things about Friends everybody loves to hate, which is like the fat shaming of Monica. Yes. Where you got Courtney Cox in a big fat suit eating a sandwich and like that everybody's making fat jokes. Yeah. I will say the Jennifer Aniston one is the most effective in terms of actually making her look young. Like I could actually believe that they got, you know, Aniston's younger sister or something Just to play by that. Get it giving her her old nose back? No, they do they do the prosthetic nose so she kind of looks like Blossom. They do the hair and something about just the way she carries herself. Yeah. I I kind of believe it. Like she looks like she could be 17, 18 years old. The awkwardness shots. for sure. Um, yeah. And so we've, we've got the, the prom video goes, you know, Rachel has come over to Monica's house and they're, you know, getting ready for the prom, waiting for their dates. We've got an appearance by Donkey Lips from Salute Your Shorts. Yeah, he's Monica's date. He's date. Monica's date. And then we get a meltdown, right? Because Chet, Rachel's high school boyfriend, hasn't shown up. Yeah. And so Mr. Geller is going to have a conversation with Ross. And this just smacked so much of those 
found footage movies where you're watching these intimate conversations with people and going, why is somebody filming this? Why are they pointing the camera at this? Yeah. So you have to kind of suspend your disbelief a little bit that part of this, you know, homemade prom video is this conversation between Elliot Gould, the dad and young Ross, who, by the way, looks by far the funniest in my opinion of everybody he's got the mr cotter wig which they make fun of yeah the mustache and he he's the opposite like if aniston effectively looks like a teenager ross looks older in the flashback well and they even call him mr cotter you know they tease him but to me he kind of looks like adam sandler and the wedding singer i could see with a mustache yeah it's he's definitely he's he's got a a 70s porn vibe for sure but uh, but yeah, Elliot Gould, the dad, is talking to him going, you know, well, if if Rachel is, you know, she doesn't have a date to the prom anymore, you can put on my tuxedo and you can take her to the prom and save the day. And he's going, oh, gee, I don't know, dad. And again, all the while, this is all being captured on videotape. And the- yeah, because they're keeping it rolling, but they don't want to record Rachel sobbing in the right. corner and being like, you know, consoled by Monica. But the best part of this, all the while... Ross has been playing on his little Casio keyboard, his rendition of, is it the theme from Beverly Hills Cop? All right, so I guess it's the Axel Foley theme from Beverly Hills Cop. Anyway, he's been playing his little keyboard. And so when he decides to take his dad's advice and offer to take Rachel to the prom, he goes, okay, dad, hold my board and he hands him the (laughs) keyboard and goes upstairs to get ready yeah so he gets the suit he grabs some carnations out of the vase on the uh on the little like display there on the top of their staircase and comes down and just as he's coming down the stairs you know the girls are all squealing and screaming because while the three of them have been upstairs getting ready chet has arrived and squeal and scream oh i'm so happy he's here and they all rush out and then the camera turns back around and we see ross just like standing there on the stairs sad holding flowers yeah so I guess, fortunately for him, Rachel was was never aware of this in the moment. Well, and neither was Monica. Right. So nobody except the parents know about this, and maybe they've since forgotten. Well, and Ross, too, because the parents don't stay to watch the prom video. They're long since gone. This is why Ross remembers, and Ross is trying to get out of the apartment so he's not there when they get to watch him be embarrassed yeah but you hear the dad in the video go oh no when he sees that chet has shown up after all to take her so yeah the whole friends gang now is left staring at the television going oh my god ross did this adorable slash pathetic slash you know i don't know heartwarming thing by putting on his dad's tuxedo to take rachel to the prom and he ended up sort of making a fool of himself because her date showed up and he was there literally all dressed up with nowhere to go nowhere to go and monica like sits up and turns around and is like, Ross, I didn't know you did that. And sort of says the thing that, you know, Rachel would have said. But Rachel's just sort of like stunned. And then we get the moment she gets up, silently walks over to where he is and at the door and smooches him. And then everybody's laughing like the whole cast is all happy. Monica's yeah. like the uh, Courtney Cox is legitimately hiding her face because she's like giggling well, so hard. And we get Phoebe and announcing. Phoebe 
using she he's her lobster because he's, that's she's her his lobster. Yeah, that's been her metaphor the whole show is that lobsters mate for life, and so that's you know that's her thing. I'm noticing. Phoebe is often the one who doesn't get her own story. Of course, she does sometimes, but very often she's left to be the sort of, you know, wise spectator that chimes in now and then. She often does not have her own thing going on. Yeah, which tracks with, remember the first time we watched Friends, you were like, you know, I never really liked Phoebe so much. And that's for exactly that reason. She doesn't get a lot of storylines in the first few seasons. Every, you know, she will, but it's usually like a random weird one-off episode well and i think that they give her the role kind of like kramer and seinfeld of like she's fun and quirky and a little above it all so it's like she can comment on your relationship we don't need to worry about her love life as much uh because she's just kind of presiding over things sure and i think she and ross both have that like we don't even live in the building kind of thing like we're not part of this core group of friends but we are but we're the like we're the plus ones kind of a thing so so Yeah, if we're saying that that Sam and Diane's relationship is based on this tension and hostility, it's like Ross and Rachel's relationship is based on how much he liked her in high school. Yeah, it's problematically based on a high school crush. He is in love with a girl that doesn't exist, and she is in a place where she is emotionally insecure and kind of wants that. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. And look, it goes without saying, you know, we're having fun here. We're taking these, these things more seriously, maybe, than they're, they're meant to be taken. But <laughs> We're doing the sitcom study, we're doing the Jay. work. Uh, yeah, it's like, there are reasons to like Ross. You know, like, you could be interested in the fact that he's a scientist or the fact that he's this sort of wounded soul because of his experiences in the past you know like she they don't have any of that like she doesn't connect to him in any of those ways it's more just like i'm touched by how much you seem to love me Right, because she is sort of paralleling Sam, not in like the womanizing kind of ways or like, you know, being a hound kind of ways, but in that she's just always been hot and popular. And so she's just always had boyfriends who thought of her as this like trophy for her looks. But Ross is like in love with her. And but it's just not just, but so, but it doesn't seem that way, right? Like he wants to do nice things for her, not just parade her around like her other guys. Yeah, have. but that's the part that I find a little problematic because it's just like it's it's hitting home that idea that the girl that you're you know in love with or have a crush on or whatever is just the hottest girl you know. Sure, yeah. and that, but then that also was a, a plot point in the pros and cons episode right because his cons are she's ditzy she's just a waitress she cares too much about her looks it's all the stuff that turns out to be true like throughout their relationship that it's the reason he consistently puts her down and she like they end up breaking up because she is not going to be treated that way anymore she's grown so much that she doesn't want that 
Yeah, and again, you could say the same thing where there are things to like about her. Like, yes, she's Jennifer Aniston. She's one of the most attractive people who has ever lived. But also, you know, she has that personality. The same things that we like about her as an actress, you would like about her as a person within the world of friends. That sense of humor and that, you know, I don't know, just her whole sort of fun way of being. The reasons why they're all friends with her. And again... Like you're saying, if anything, those are almost like minuses for Ross. Like right. they don't seem compatible in any meaningful way. And so, yeah. <laughs> so TV Land consistently up through the late 90s, right, is giving us the best couples, right? Their best couples are completely incompatible. Our best examples, if what are we going to learn from this, right? Our best examples of these great loves are people who are at their core pretty incompatible. Well, see, that begs the question, what do you mean by best? Because I think maybe the defense of the shows would be, oh, no, we're, if you want the best couples in terms of what would make the actual, like, most successful couples in real life, that's not, that's one episode, and they get together and things are good. We want the couples with the most material for story, ergo, conflict. Absolutely. I'm saying, though, like, as a young, impressionable person who is watching television, for examples of relationships, whether or not you have parents that are together or not, as you're growing up, these are the great loves. This is your Romeo and Juliet, another problematic couple, right? Like, yes, you're right, the great romances tend to be the ones that we hear about that have the greatest stories and they have the greatest stories because they weren't right for each other in the damn first place. But I don't think it always has to be that way. And now we're going to go talk about two others. Yeah, no, that is true. And I think we will see a, a change in the tide. On that note, let's move on to The Office. Season two, episode 22, Casino Night. Yeah, so if we're saying that these other relationships are starting on shaky grounds, I feel like the cold open of this one sets us immediately on a better track. We get Jim telling Dwight that he has he has telekinesis basically right that he's just he's like you know it's just weird ever since i was a teenager it's like you know i just kind of think about something and i can and, and i can make it move with my mind and you know of course dwight is completely incredulous and then he's like you prove it you, you do it right now everybody jim's gonna move something with his mind and so he puts his fingers to his temples and kind of really concentrates and 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 dwight's like move the coat rack and so he's like okay and he's staring at the coat rack and then we get these cuts between the actual scene and then the later talking head with jenna fisher and the and the documentary crew and she holds up an umbrella so jim is staring at the coat rack which is right next to pam's desk and pam's got her boyfriend there or fiance there like leaning over talking to her and she's just sitting there and she's looking at the coat rack too 
And all of a sudden it moves and then it cuts to Pam and she holds up an umbrella with a little hook on it. Like that's how she made it move. And then that's it. And then she winks at Jim back in the moment. It cuts back and Jim just like grins. And so it just establishes that great friendship and the fun flirty thing that we've been watching develop over the whole first two seasons. Yeah, they didn't plan this at all. Jim just spontaneously decided to, to, you know, mess with Dwight and the opportunity presented itself and they're just completely on the same page about the way to mess with him and uh yeah their sense of humor is just 100 aligned this is how they get through the day with their sanity on booze cruise they had a little drunken kiss mm-hmm. that's what's happened in the meanwhile but that was like it was a drunken thing and they both were like oh my gosh that was so embarrassing we'll never do that again ha 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 so embarrassing he <laughs> and now we've got this talking head of pam being like you know, life is great. Work is great. I'm getting along with everybody. It's really nice. You know, wedding planning is going really great. And so then we get the scene where Jim comes over to her desk and Roy has left and she's going through this box of VHS tapes. And she's like, yeah, Roy was supposed to, you know, be in charge of picking music, but now he's really excited about planning his bachelor party. So this is on me too. So I got to figure it out. And Jim immediately jumps in and is like, well, this is amazing. We've got to watch all of these really bad bands. Like these are people who just like never fulfilled their dreams. It'll make us feel better about just like not having dreams. And then they both giggle and run like giddily off into another conference room to use the VCR. Yeah. Again, you have perfect show don't tell about their relationship because you see how Jim is able to, yeah, make things that would be boring or tedious fun. And he's able to put this whole different spin on it. And you also come to realize that that is something that they have in common. He's joking a little bit about we don't have dreams, but they are both sort of feckless or rudderless in that way that they're, they they did not aspire to anything, at least professionally, that they can really articulate and that that you know they they both have that sort of ennui because of that so that is part of the reason why they both kind of get off at snickering at you know wedding band audition tapes and so in terms of office canon they're ironically watching the audition tapes for the wedding band gives us our first a taste of Scrantonicity, That's Kevin's right. Band. Kevin's Band, which has made a music video that looks very 1980s and heavily features Kevin as the drummer and singer yeah. of Scrantonicity. But yeah, so we get this great little moment. And then this is also, we've got Pam's talking head cut in with then Jim's talking head, which gives us a little insight as to why he has sort of realize that he needs to kind of back off right at the Christmas party. He was all up, you know, upset because she wasn't going to get the present that he had spent all this time on. And after that was all over and she did get the present and he was happy. He took away the card that confessed everything about how he feels. And he kind of realizes like, I can't like this. I'm not this guy. I'm not the guy who steals another guy's girlfriend. Like I'm not this guy. I've got to back off and I've got to do something else. And so now we found out that he's applied for a transfer. Yeah. He's realizing that, that a relationship with Pam is probably not in the cards at the same time as he's admitting to himself that he's, in love with her and he can't just brush it off and that yeah he's 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 
kind of going crazy and sort of realizing like, I need to just extricate myself from this. Like this has gone from something that was fun and cute to like being a problem in my life. Right. And so again, so much of the Jim Pam stuff happens off camera. Off camera, he has reached out for this transfer and Jan, the boss, has come in for casino night yeah. and fills him in later on in this episode. He He's going to get told that he did get the transfer, that it has gone through. And so now he's got some decisions to make, right? right. Because he knows he's saying goodbye. Yes. And that's a secret from everybody else on the show. Right. Now, the casino night aspect of this is that the the office branch is throwing this casino fundraiser. Michael has a scene on the phone with Jan. I love in the office when they do reaction shots of the phone console, right? Because he's talking to her on speakerphone. He says these horrible, cringy things all the time. And you don't have a person to cut to. So to punctuate the awkward silences, they will just cut to this phone terminal thing just sitting on the desk. And it's like the silence is deafening. You know, you're just watching nothing happening. But anyway, yeah. He's like, he'll sit there, he'll say something stupid or, you know, overtly sexual, which he shouldn't say to Jan because at this point Michael and Jan have hooked up but they like that's it was just a one-off yes yes she does not take him seriously as a companion right and yeah exactly like you're saying it cuts to the phone and she's just silent in response to his off-color joke yeah but he's basically saying we're having this casino night you should come you know come on down and and you know it'll raise morale or whatever and then he gets a call. Uh, call. I guess. I guess we still have call waiting now. With well, cell phones. it's so. It's this is a different time. At the beginning of the episode, he has a call with Jan, and she says she's not coming. Later in the episode, he gets a call right from his realtor, and Jan has already said she's not coming to casino night. So he invites his realtor right. while he's on the phone with her before she said yes, I'm coming. Jan calls and he says, put her through. And so then Jan says, oh, I'm coming. And then he goes, okay, bye. And then gets back on the phone, the realtor and the realtor's like, uh, yes, yes, I'm coming. And so now he's like, I've got two dates, love triangle. And he's all excited. Yeah. Classic, another overlapping sitcom trope, the two dates for one event. The realtor is Carol, uh, played by Steve Carell's real life wife. So she's been in the show a couple times before. It's very funny, the episode where she convinces him to get this condo that will be more like a tomb, as Dwight puts it, because it's going to take the rest of his life to pay off. And so I guess this is the start of the arc where she's going to be his girlfriend for a little while. So, yeah, he's got this situation with two, you know, quote unquote, two dates to this one event. Jan, she shows up and Dwight has been put in charge of trying to keep them separate, but he doesn't really, uh, you know, succeed. No, he's horrible at it. He's like, you know, I'm the best wingman ever. And he walks up in front of each of them and is like, so and so is here. And like, so Steve Carell's real wife, Nancy, um, is like rolling her eyes because she can hear Dwight like as he's saying these things. So she kind of knows what's up, but is like, whatever, you know, he invited me. I'm going to, you know, give it my an earnest try to go on a date with this guy and seems kind of nice. So there you go. Yeah. So 
So Jan steps out, smokes a cigarette. That's when we get the conversation with Jim, where he steps out too. And we, we, the audience, find out that he has been transferred, if he wants, to the Stanford branch. Right. Um, And Jim has stepped out because he has just had several really fun experiences with Pam, right? Like they had this one moment where they were flirting very, you know, cutesily across a poker table. And he's like, Beasley, I think you're bluffing, you know, and all this. We should say this is, I think, in the middle of that early 2000s poker craze, right? And so they're playing Texas Hold'em. And, you know, that was that was just a thing. There's always been casino night fundraisers, but that was really a thing in the culture at this time. Yeah, it was when that like World Series of Poker first started being aired and getting big sponsors and stuff on like whatever ESPN or GSN or something. I mean, it was on cable and this was still in that like burgeoning streaming era, right? Like I think at this point I was still getting Netflix DVDs. There wasn't a streaming thing yet. And so this is also the start, I think, or one of the first instances of Kevin being this sort of professional gambler slash gambling addict, you know, and he always kind of has the lowdown about like the horses and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I guess this all kind of comes to a head when Jim and Pam are kind of hanging out outside. Roy leaves, right? Roy, the fiance, says, I'm heading home. I'm tired. You know, catch a ride home with your friends. So Jim and Pam are outside and she's still having a ball. It seems like she's a little drunk, maybe. And she's just kind of like, yeah, what's up? You know, you want to lose again? You want to play so I can beat you again? Yeah, well, so exactly. So Jim, um, and I thought the the setup for the scene was really great, right? Because, you know, we clocked in the previous episodes that maybe Roy was a little jealous of her friendship with Jim, but that now seems to have kind of come, we've moved beyond that. And part of it was like Jim coming to his realization that like he needed to kind of back off and they could be friends, but it was going to like, you know, going to be like that kind of a thing. And then also the awkwardness from the kiss and whatever. And so Jim has been back at the end of this long line of cars sitting with Jan while she was having a cigarette and getting the details that he was going to be able to be transferred. Now, Pam is at the front of this long line of cars leaning into the window saying goodnight to Roy. And as Roy drives off in his truck he notices jim walking along the other side of the cars to go back in and is like hey jim you know take good care of her and and she's like oh haha and he's like will do buddy you know and then they have this conversation what i noticed about this is that they don't know the cameras are there the cameras are so far away yeah They do a little bit better of a job with that in the office. And that's something they talk about on their podcast is you're always going to be cheating a little bit with this faux documentary found footage type thing. But they always try to have a logic to what would and wouldn't be filmed for a documentary. And when you are filming intimate moments, how would you go about getting that? Right. And so this was a decision and there was this whole big long conversation. Do they or do they not know that the cameras are there? The decision was made that the cameras would be hidden so that they wouldn't, the characters wouldn't know that they were there. Jenna Fisher talked about feeling very alone in that parking lot because they don't, they didn't normally shoot scenes like this. And so, yeah, it's just the two of them. We've got these like wide angle lenses that are kind of zoomed in and Jim tells her he loves her. Yeah. And I have to say, like, physical response, like, you feel the tension when he says, 
I'm in love with you. You know, it is one of those, if you've been watching this show, you know, I guess it, it hasn't been on for that long at this point, but still like- Oh, if, but it's been, the tension's been rising. Like yeah. I remember being so excited when this happened. Like, I don't I don't know that I watched it live. I probably had it on TiVo, but oh my, I was like, ah, jumping up and down and pausing and rewinding and watching that part over and over again. Jim cries, like he's got a tear when she, I mean, cold as ice. Nope. Yeah, well, what she says, yeah, she says, I can't. She just, she just keeps saying that, I can't. And I think, you know. uh, And then wants to give him the you're my best friend speech. Oh, no. And that, uh, you can, you could tell that's very painful for him. And he's like, nope, nope, let's not do that. I don't want to hear that. And yeah, you can see how, from her point of view, saying that is both true and false at the same time. Right. And then she says the worst thing. Which is what? I'm sorry you misinterpreted. Yeah. Oh. And that, again, is just like, well, you know, like she has the plausible deniability. She could make that claim and it will probably hold up in court. There's nothing you could point to to go, well, you couldn't have meant anything else when you said or did that. Well, and and that's because that's what she's been doing to herself. She has been convincing herself of this. Exactly. She's clearly in denial and in shock in this moment. So for her to just say, I can't do this, this is not an option for me, is sort of the most truthful thing that she can say at that time. Yeah. The the alternative would be like we get in other shows and like we see in real life that she's just like okay and then they have this affair or they like you know then we get all the drama of the breakup and then it would be like the ross and rachel like oh now she's got to make a you know pro con list about jim but they take it this other direction she says no you're my best friend i can't and i never meant it to get this far like right. i never meant it to be like this and i didn't want you to feel that way but it's not over that's her yeah, initial yeah. no prep time no contemplation that is my response okay go our separate ways so she goes back up to the office and calls her mom so then we get the scene with pam on the phone with her mom and the our office is really dark and you know she's still in her dress but she's like you know she's all like hunched over she looks the tiniest i've ever seen her she just looks so vulnerable you know what i mean and we only see like part of her face because she's got like She's profiled to the camera and she's holding the phone in the like side against the side of her face that is, uh, you know, to the camera. It's being shot through the window from the exterior. So a whole different mise en scene, if you will, than usual. (laughs) She's and yeah, so it's like we have this whole again, you know, they don't know the cameras there. Jim, do you think that he followed her or do you think he came up to get his stuff and leave too? Good question. I would say um, both, but I guess the one sort of envelops the other. I think he went up there to see if she was there. To see if she was there. Well, so what we hear her saying to her mom is, you know, he's my best friend. No, I know. Of course I do. And the way that it is kind of spelled out like that, you 
you as the viewer get the sense that she is confessing to her mom that she does love Jim. Yes, or at the very least that I have a lot of thinking to do. Right. And that what I just said about you misinterpreted and I can't do this and, you know, you're you're taking this all wrong, that that was not real. And do you think that Jim heard any of that as he was coming to the door to come in? I think that he was going to do what he was going to do regardless. I don't think that what Pam says to her mom really plays into it. And I think when when she sees him, she immediately goes, oh, I, I got to go, I got to go, and, and hangs up without even saying goodbye. So I have a feeling that she's she's playing it like it would be in real life, like I'm having a quiet, discreet phone call and I'm going to immediately hang up when I see him. Right. And she's sobbing, which he does notice. Like she's crying and she wipes her face and he just comes over and kisses her, like grabs her and kisses her, Yeah, which I remember cheering when I watched this the first time. It's definitely like, I wouldn't say it's not like a forceful, like you couldn't stop me if you tried. No, not at all. It's a decisive, but still sort of gentle uh, execution. And yeah, she is startled at first and then kisses him back. And this is another cut to black, That's right? It. End of episode. Yeah. So we're three for three pretty much so far in terms of however it is that we get there, we're going to end with a kiss and then see you next time. Yeah. And I mean, we are, I guess, Cheers and this one were season finales. We were mid-season on Friends. Yeah. And like we talked about, Friends was sort of constantly roller coastering all over the place. But yeah, so we're uh, we're leaving this going, wow, like truly, true question mark at this point, right, for the viewer at the end of this season of what is possibly going to happen at the start of the next one. Yes. And as we know, it's all going to happen off camera and we're going to be so angry trying to figure it out as we go in season three. Yeah. But the one thing it seems like we're saying so far is that if we're evaluating these relationships as though they were real, Jim and Pam have a good thing going relative to our other lunatic couples so far. They do. They have a good thing going. And I know that in recent years... We've talked about this a little bit. There has been, you know, started to be more and more like gym hate online of just, you know, like you were saying, the fact that he never respected boundaries with her having a boyfriend and was always just like, you know, continuing to like love bomb her in certain ways. But I, I've always had a kind of problem with that narrative because of what you were talking about with their personalities and their sense of humor being so aligned that it wasn't a a disequal friendship. You know, the things that brought them together kept bringing them together, not because of sexual tension and sexual attraction. It's that the sexual tension grew out of a mutual friendship, a mutual like of one another, which I think is going to be what we're carrying over into New Girl as well. Yeah, they definitely do a great job of establishing the sexual aspect of it is is almost beside the point. Like they're both, they're young, they're good looking, fine, but they do a great job of substantiating it. And yeah, you know, just like we were saying, why don't they dig into what Ross or Rachel really like about each other? All of those talking heads where you see Jim like beaming with pride at something that Pam did, always to Dwight. It's always, you know, the weird 
sketch that she made about the child predator that Dwight doesn't realize is a sketch well, of exactly him. exactly like it. Yeah, I mean, the list goes <laughs> on and on. All these fun ideas that she has of ways to mess with him. And he's so impressed and thrilled by that. That's that's what they have. Would that really be the greatest basis for a relationship? I don't know. But so far, it, compared to everything else, it's pretty solid. Moving on to New Girl. Season 2, Episode 15, Cooler. Yeah, so where did we leave Nick and Jess? This one is harder for me to... Nick and Jess, we left them where on the episode Fluffer, where Nick felt like he was being kind of taken advantage of as being the emotional component to her kind of sexual only relationship with hot doctor named Sam. And so in the intervening time, so at the end of that episode, they, you know, Nick's like, look, nobody's going to tell us what our relationship can be. Like, yeah, we are attracted to one another, but we're not going there and that's not where we're going to go. But like, I'm going to do nice things for you and you're going to ask for help for me, but I'm not going to do those nice things so that you can go have meaningless sex. If you want to go on a date with somebody, go on a date with the guy that you're sleeping with. And she's like, you know what? That's a fair point. And now we fast forwarded. This was that was towards. Towards the beginning of season two. Now we're midway through season two. Locked in February sweeps. That's where we are. So good reason to have a great episode like this. February sweeps. So Sam and Jess now are officially dating. She took Nick's advice. She went and talked to Sam about how it was hard for her to, you know, just have like a sex only relationship. And he's like, cool, let's go out on some dates. And so they did. And now they've really kind of gotten into a swing and and he's her boyfriend. But so in this episode, he's busy for the night and Cece's busy for the night and the guys are going to go out and get their mojo back because all three of them have been through breakups. Cece's now dating other guys. Uh, so Schmidt is still trying to get over her. Winston broke up with the girl that who didn't really like him that we saw in that last episode that they were having problems. And Nick just sort of is always unlucky in love, right? So they're going to go get their mojo back. They're going to go out and Jess is like, yeah, I'm going to be the wingman. And they're like, the hell you are you're staying home and nick is the one who's like you're my cooler like every time i try to start to hit on a girl you make friends with her and then all of a sudden it's not about me anymore yeah if this is all nick's terminology last time he was the fluffer you know he didn't want to be the fluffer anymore and now he's saying you're the cooler again you know it's it's cock blocking you know it's it's saying you're getting in the way of me you know getting getting my groove on so the three of them resolve winston schmidt and nick to go out on the town by themselves leaving jess to her own devices and we get sort of a comical smash cut to the three of them sitting at the bar dejected and schmidt going i can't believe you got us kicked out of the discotheque right (laughs) right and that's because nick earlier like at the beginning of the episode we don't see it but apparently this trench coat this woman's trench coat was delivered to the wrong address nick opened it put it on and fell in love with it he's like this coat gives me confidence i look amazing and winston and 
Jess are teasing him because it's a woman's coat, a woman's coat. And Jess is like, yes, and it also has room for your hips, you know. And he's like, I don't care if it's a woman's coat. I look fabulous. And so he, they got kicked out of the discotheque because he was wearing a trench coat like a creeper and he wouldn't take it off. Yeah. So now the three of them are back in their usual, you know, sort of hangout bar. And they're each having their own little stories. Winston, like... He he's almost become like Raj in Big Bang Theory, where he can't even speak to women. So he he goes to some lady and just kind of stammers all over himself. And then he sits down next to Brenda Song. You know, he starts up a whole subplot with her where she pretends to be engaged. So it's like the pressure's off and she's going to sort of coach him in the ways of, you know, being a little smoother. Right. We don't find out till the end of the episode or near the end of the episode that her engagement ring is fake because she says to him, she's like, well, you don't have to have the yips with me. I'm engaged. But that's basically what it is. He's got the yips. He like he just doesn't know. He was worried that all women think he's trying to sleep with them. So anything he says is just going to be taken the wrong way. And he doesn't want to be taken the wrong way. So he's just overthinking, overthinking. He's yeah, got he's in his own head. He's just yeah, he's self-conscious and awkward. And meanwhile, Schmidt and Nick are sort of vying for the attentions of Brooklyn Decker. She is playing this sexy lady who turns out to sort of have a fetish for like self-loathing guys. Like yeah, she she's wants- got a sad guy kink. Yeah, she wants to, you know, she wants to have someone that she can go like, don't you just hate yourself? Aren't you just a worm, a lowly, disgusting worm? And so they're both like competing for who can be the more pathetic, basically. But the point of all of this is that they get everyone kind of all riled up and uh, Jess calls Nick. Well, let's back up for a second. Jess has been has been having her night alone at the flat and she's doing what i sort of imagine you passing the time by yourself maybe (laughs) uh she's she's getting dressed up in ballet outfits and running around the house like that she's doing robot dances she's doing her own olympic marathon thing where she pretends to be the runner from kenya and like falls on the floor going damn you zimbabwe (laughs) like she's just doing this whole crazy pageant of costumes right her she said she was gonna stay home since she had to stay home she was like i guess i have stuff to do i need to organize my closet so she has all of her clothes out and she's trying on all these different things and of course that leads to lots of fun you know as you do you play dress up when you're home alone i don't know why you think that's a weird thing whatever and so yeah she's having a good night but then she hears this weird like snuffling scratching sound at the door yeah, this is your pretty standard, you know, I'm scared. What is that? You know, who, who what's out there? You know, she, she doesn't like being alone. She doesn't like being alone at night. You know, she's used to living with all these roommates. And so she calls Nick. Well, she calls everybody but Nick first. Yeah, okay. And nobody answers because they're all busy. And then she calls Nick and Schmidt is trying to do the cock blocking thing because obviously Nick is more of a sad guy than Schmidt is. So he's winning this Brooklyn Decker girl over. And Schmidt's like, oh, look, it's Jess. And like gives Nick the phone and makes him take the call. Yeah. And Nick is like, this is what I mean. This, you know, you think that you're just doing your thing. You're scared of a burglar or whatever, but you're screwing up my sexual escapades here. You know, I got something going. And once again, 
you're ruining it. And she just, she's relentless. She'll, she's just like, I'm really scared. I really, really need you to come. So they pack up everybody, Brenda Song, Brooklyn Decker, all the various girls that they're trying to sleep with. They bring them all back to the flat. That's right. And they, you know, Jess, like they, like they open the door and Jess jumps out from the side, like wearing a helmet and yeah. holding a broom handle with some knife, like duct tape to the end of it. Cause that was her weapon. So she could protect herself against whatever was scratching at the door earlier. So she scares the shit out of all of them. And then they decide, and then, you know, again, Nick's like, this is it. This is why you're such a cooler or whatever. And she's like, no, we're going to have a good night. We're going to, and they play the most epic game of true American that yeah. they've played. They've got, they said, and it's Clinton rules because you get to choose your intern. Right. True, true American is one of the great sort of ongoing inside jokes of new girl. It's just meant to sort of symbolize all the, weird drinking games that you know you're sort of intimidated by how does that work how come everybody knows how to play this but me you know it's this game that they never explain in the show they just keep adding all these crazy wrinkles so you just sort of hear them it, it's always done in a montage right so you just sort of see this crazy montage of them running around and jumping and throwing things and you're hearing one of them yell jfk and well Clinton that's how Wolves. it starts right so it always starts jfk fdr and then they like run and everybody has to like be up on chairs or tables yeah, it's like the, the floor, floor is lava. lava and there's all sorts and like like you said they nobody ever knows the rules it's a little bit different every time it's crazy yeah. you'll hear them go like are we playing cabinets no no cabinets this time yeah you know, just all these weird aspects that you'll never understand and it all like has these like random references to you know uh, his, American history, American government kind of thing. So like in this one, like we said, we've got the Clinton rules, which means you get to choose your intern. They have like an iron curtain, which is the sliding door in the loft. And they're like, you have to go behind the iron curtain and kiss. And like, I mean, there's all yeah, sorts of The Clinton things. rules is what turns it into like strip true American and right. what makes it sexual. But yeah, even though Jess is scared and doesn't want to be alone, She's still very much in the mindset or at least, you know, claiming to be in the mindset of like, we're buds, me and Nick, and I'm going to help you score. You know, right. she still is treating this as a platonic friendship. And it doesn't bother me that you want to sleep with Brooklyn Decker. I'll help you. Yeah. And that's the same with in the last episode with him helping her with Sam. He yeah. was like happy that, you know, she was wanting to. But, you know, when she's home alone in the loft, she doesn't make a melon head boyfriend and you know protector of her boyfriend she makes yes. it of nick so she kind of does like what lily does in how i met your mother every time her husband marshals out of town she puts his sweatshirt on a pillow and calls it marsh pillow yeah right i was, I was thinking wilson from castaway yeah. but sure. so jess puts the sweatshirt on a pillow, but then draws on a melon, like Nick's sort of beardy face, and then sits like the melon headed hoodie sweatshirt thing in the corner of her room. So she has someone to talk to. And it's Nick, like she makes Nick. So they just, you know, we're kind of nodding to the fact that they know that they have a very different and very close relationship. But that doesn't mean that it's that that they're trying to make it sexual, right? Yeah. So anyway, so they're playing True American and it comes to a head where it's, you know, Nick and Schmidt keep competing over Brooklyn Decker. So Brooklyn and 
Jess are sitting on one side and Nick and Schmidt are sitting on the other side and they're playing that game of like, you know, the twos where you shoot the numbers with your fingers. Yeah, odds and evens. Is, yeah, and so, so whoever has like the same number or whatever has to go behind the Iron Curtain and do diplomacy, which means they have to kiss, Yeah, right? this is sort of turned into seven minutes in heaven type thing. Right. So, and everybody's super drunk at this point because that's true American. Like you're constantly just chugging beers, right? So Nick is looking at Brooklyn and he's like, two, two, put up a two. We're doing a two. You got to put up a two. And she's like, okay, she's super drunk. She's like, okay, yep, got to do a two. Okay. And then Schmidt puts up a four and Brooklyn puts up like a three or a four and both Nick and Jess put up a two. And at this point, it has turned into shrimp, true American. And so everybody's in pieces of their clothing. So now Jess just has on her like tutu and a bra and Nick has on only his trench coat and like underwear underneath. Yeah, he looks like a flasher. Yeah, basically. he's wearing like black socks and the trench coat and that's all he's got on. Maybe underwear underneath because he slides down the door at one point and like quickly puts his little hands yeah. between his legs to keep it from flashing the camera. So the two of them go into the Iron Curtain. So we get at first like what you would see in a high school movie, the sort of like, oh, we don't really have to make out. Like, we, we can just sit here and wait it out. Like, we don't have to do it. But then eventually it gets to the point where they're like, all right, let's just do it. And we have a whole retread of what happened in Cheers. It's a little different because they're still not ready to say this is like us getting together or anything. Sure, because they, I mean, she's got a boyfriend. But they're still doing the thing of let's kiss. Right, well, and every, they won't let them out. That's the thing, right? Like the rules of the game are you have to do this diplomacy and that's the only way the game can move on. So all of their friends are like crazy drunk. Yeah, yeah, you know, and yelling at them, kiss, kiss. It's got to be with tongue, kiss, kiss. So they send a picture of them sort of like kissing on the cheek and they're like, nope, not good enough. Get in there, do it, do it for your country. Do it. And they're like having this whole crisis because and Jess is like over it. She's like, who cares? Fucking just kiss me. Like, let's go. Just kiss me. And he's like, no, not like this. Right. To which Jess sort of like kind of pulls up short and is like, what do you mean? Not like this. And it realizing like realizing like, oh, this is going to like this might mean something. He doesn't want to do it in this moment. And then like. We always see with Nick, he can't talk about his feelings. It's too much. Ah, he freaks out. He walks into one of the bedrooms and climbs out the window onto the side of the building and then can't get back in and is like, I made a mistake and shimmies over to the living room window. (laughs) He totally short circuits because, yeah, he just can't process it. And yeah, it is funny. You know, our very first episode was about the losing the virginity and what does this all mean? So... Yeah, when you've got a show about, you know, adults in their 30s, it's it's funny how it's it's weirdly sort of gone back to the womb and he's he's almost created this sense of innocence for himself where it's like now because I really like her, even kissing is like I'm not ready for that, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, and he, he wants it to be just right. Yeah, that was the thing least, I took from that. Right, or at, at least he he doesn't want it to be a joke. Like he doesn't want it to be part of a game. He right. doesn't want to 
diffuse what could be like a real sexual or romantic tension with like, well, we did make out for two American. You right. Because we had to. I don't like he, you know, it kind of comes to like, I don't want our first kiss to be because we had to. Yeah. And like, like Diane was saying, the weird premeditated thing, because because we're having that same thing where Jess is going, what are you doing with your face? Don't do that with your face. What do you, you know, like just that whole thing of like, oh, gee, I never, I never thought about this so hard what do i do with my hands you right. know, that oh, that's whole right. I forgot. he thing. goes in to kiss her with like his eyes go he like licks his lips and goes in with his eyes closed and she's like what are you doing with your face and then he's like i don't know and then he goes in like to smile and like yeah, keeps he his eyes this, open like, this like really creepy big smile toothy grin as he's going into and she's kissing. like ah what's that don't kiss with your teeth <laughs> yeah so that yeah that's sort of how that scene ends with him going out the window the the rest of the gang is horrified when they see him from the living room like shinnying across the window come back in but Uh, then that just makes him win all the more with the girl with the sad guy thing because she's like oh my god he was about to kill himself that's my guy so it's like all right he's that so now we've moved back into that where he's like definitely in Jess wasn't the cooler definitely in with um this brooklyn decker girl yeah and meanwhile winston you know his his lady friend brenda song is finally ready to tell him guess what uh this ring i've been wearing is fake i'm a single lady so uh you know come on let's let's see what you got and he goes hey girl what your name is it's <laughs> like he's perfect with those deliveries he really like, is and so what that thing do that was the other one he said that made me laugh what that thing do <laughs> but so uh he kind of gets it together and he's like all right you know what i'm gonna go for it and he kisses her and it's like okay winston winston has a win for this episode and then meanwhile does Nick, like, retire with Brooklyn Decker? No, they're sitting on the couch, and Schmidt is still trying to compete, right? He's still like, no, I swear I'm sadder, I swear I'm sadder. And then at some point, Nick gets up and is, you know, talking to Jess about something else. Like, you know, I think it, they revisited that cooler conversation, and she's like, okay, I get it, you're right. I see how I've been a cooler in this instance and in this instance, and I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do it anymore. You're right, you're right. And she recognizes that she gets in the way sometimes. And then Sam arrives because he too received messages from Jess and is there. This is must be before Nick cra- crawled out on the thing because he starts cheering him on like, you guys got to kiss, kiss. So Jess's boyfriend is trying to get her to kiss her roommate because it's all part of the game. Like yeah. this is the and world just, that they're living in. He's just not threatened by Nick at all. Right. Similar to, I think, how Roy feels about Jim. Right. So yeah, it ends with... You know, once everything has sort of died down a little bit, Jess goes to bed with Sam, her boyfriend. Yeah, one by one, each of the couples says goodnight to Nick, and Nick is left all alone. Right. And so he's like, all right, goodnight, everybody. And he does his sort of funny Jake Johnson thing of like, you know, I'm only 32, but I've got the soul of a 58-year-old guy. And, and he's just, still wearing that trench coat. Yeah, so he's just got his sort of fun, crotchety thing. And okay, I'm here by myself. And then they cross paths again. 
again in the hall, Jess and Nick, right? Well, so the scratching at the door comes back. So this is later in the night, right? Everybody is like asleep. They've all had their sex. They're all like sleeping. The scratching happens. Jess comes out with her broomstick again. This time it's got a curling iron strapped on the top of it. And she opens the door and Nick comes out too. And they open the door and it's a dog and the dog jumps up on Nick and it's this huge like Beethoven kind of dog and this girl runs down the hallway and she's like oh my gosh oh my gosh I'm so sorry wait a minute is that my coat I knew my package got delivered here and Nick's like oh sorry sorry and she's like were you sleeping in it and Jess is like I think that he was he really likes it and so takes off the coat you know gives it to the girl she's like this apartment is so weird and she storms off down the hallway with her dog and her coat So they're walking back to their respective bedrooms after figuring out what the scary thing was and whatever. And they have a quick little conversation. And Jess is like, all right, you know, good night, Nick. And she turns. And as she turns, he grabs her arm. It's the fucking hottest kiss. He grabs her arm, pulls her back to him, and they just like go in and he kisses her. Like if Jim's kiss was like, I'm a little scared and shy, but like, you know, this is okay, right? Kind of a kiss, but still good. This was like, I fucking want you. Yes, the Latin lover embrace. This was like you're saying, like a dance move the way they go apart and then he like reels her back in. Oh my God. And then so like big, hard, like I fucking want you kiss then he backs off and then gives her like another like soft kiss and she's just like melting and then he backs off again and gives her a peck and then turns and walks away and she's just like well he says a line he says something like i wanted it to be like that oh yeah he goes like that i think yeah Yeah. something so it's like that's what i just like i mean like we all are i mean i don't know about you but i was just like yeah (laughs) Yeah. And it's so, such a good scene. I'm getting hot talking about it. Yeah. Hilariously, <laughs> she's going back into the bedroom with her dopey boyfriend. But she doesn't. She's standing there like completely, uh, you know, still trying to recover. And the door behind her opens and Sam's like half asleep and he's holding the Nick oh, melon yeah. head right. sweater doll thing and is like, hey, babe, can we get rid of this? It's really creeping me out and dumps it. It is so perfect because, again, like you said, he's not worried about. I mean, yeah. had he done that? Three seconds earlier, he'd have seen his girlfriend cheating, right? But, and so, and then the last shot of this episode is they like, you know, he, she's like, yeah, sure, and walks in the bedroom and he tosses the melon head pillow thing on the ground. The last shot is of the melon head pillow thing on the ground. The head is split open. Yeah. It really is just like, man, the foreshadowing. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny how with New Girl, you see, elements of the Sam and Diane relationship in Nick and Jess. But like we've said about these characters in general, they're just painting with less broad strokes here. It's just a more nuanced world that's taking into account all of the sitcom characters that have come before. So it's not as simple as opposites attract, go! You know, it's, it's a more complex thing where... They are, they do kind of drive each other crazy, but they're also kind of intrigued by each other. And it's just, it's, I, I buy into it more than I do 
the Sam and Diane stuff, even though the Sam and Diane stuff in some ways works just as well, but it's just not as complex and like thoughtfully drawn out. Well, and the thing I'll say about the difference between the the first two shows and the last, you know, well, even the first three shows and this one, like Sam and Diane, it is literally the two of them in an office for, I mean, I would say at 10 minutes of a 22 minute episode, right? And all of the tension and the rising and the drama is all happening between the two of them. In this show, it is building from the beginning of the show with every single character, even if it's just the two of them. It's everybody in their life is still somehow weirdly involved in this thing. And so people in their lives keep like putting them into positions where they have to have more of these and they have to advance the conversation. They have to do this and no, 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 And then it actually happens in the quiet moment, which is more true to life. So I, I, that's one of the reasons I feel like it feels so much different but also so much more real is that it really is it feels like you're in this like whirlwind of a of a life of all these people and you're never just having this like 15 minute conversation of a fight and nobody is storming out you just keep sticking in it and fighting and sticking in and fighting and sticking in and fighting are we really going to date are we really going to and it's just like it got repetitive even for us right but i think that is the difference and part of it is that the world is faster now right like things maybe in the 80s people did stick and stay and have those long fights like i don't know i wasn't a grown-up having relationships at that time well i think it also is the difference in the medium of the multi-camera sitcom to the single camera because Cheers is the oldest and it's it's the most stagey and that's why we love it but so you have those longer scenes where it's like okay interior bar office <laughs> Sam enters and then you watch it go on for seven or eight minutes with New Girl it's basically shot like a movie so you can have the 24 minute episode be 24 one minute scenes if you want you know you could have it be 48 30 second scenes it can be weaving in and out and doing all kinds of montages and all kinds of stuff that you you just don't do with those single camera ones and so that is you're saying like that's how the energy continues to just keep building and building and building with multiple characters yeah and just how you get the the story more sort of scattered and spread out and less concentrated into these you know one or two epic conversations like you see in Cheers. Yeah. So the story of Nick and Jess, that scene, they had to do the kiss seven or eight takes because it's so hot. Jake Johnson kept grabbing Zoe Deschanel's ass. That's funny. <laughs> so looking back over these, we keep kind of digging on Cheers for like, well, you know, that that relationship would never work and they're bad for each other. But I do think in some ways, in terms of the sheer sitcom greatness, you can't beat that. Like that's at the top of the heap. Again, what, what transpires in those scenes, like they do so much writing wise, acting wise, just everything, even if. We're watching it going like these two would not last five minutes. This would be the most toxic thing in the world. Sure. If we were thinking of them as like real life people, absolutely. But as sitcom people, it doesn't get better than that. And I think Sam and Diane 
are Nick and Jess. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a different era. The fact that they are working together and they're never really getting together. They just keep having this like round and round and round and round thing. And they're dating other people and they're, you know, getting jibes in on each other and they're not really friends. Then we've got Nick and Jess who are like, dating other people, but really good friends and like getting jibes in because that's how friends do. You know, we tease each other. You know, we look at Cheers as kind of this era where we had we had less examples of men, women friendships, right? But that's not true in the world of New Girl. There are co-ed friendships. And so, yeah, it's it's a fun one to kind of hold, I think those two in particular to hold up next to each other. Yeah, and then The Office, again, is often the least sitcom-y because it lets things happen off camera. It lets things happen slowly and subtly at the pace of real life. But it gave us that breathtaking moment when he finally says, I'm in love with you. And you're like, holy shit, I didn't think he was going to be quite like that. And then meanwhile, Friends gives us that amazing flashback sequence and all the craziness. So I have to say, I I just want to kind of pause and appreciate For all the times where we come down here and we're talking about, you know, the monsters going into small wonder and, you know, it's it's fun to talk about the dopey ones, too. But in this case, we have four really solid episodes that are all iconic in their own way. And just to pat ourselves on the back, (laughs) because I feel like I feel like the sort of correlation is maybe going to fall apart a little bit towards the end. The fact that all three of these end with those makeouts and like... Earth-shattering kiss. Yeah, like all of these stories sort of sync up in that way. Uh, it, it's just really kind of interesting to watch them all together. Yeah, and this will very likely be the last time we have a four, a full four sync up, right? Because what's coming next, then the final two acts of our five-act s- series on Will They, Won't They... We have these like long-term romances kind of happening with Ross and Rachel, where there's lots of up and downs over many, many seasons. With Cheers, we have Diane is only going to be on the show for another three seasons, and the writing kind of falls off because they get tired of writing the same fight scene over and over again for them. So, you know, we've got we've got kind of breakups coming. Um, But for Jim and Pam, they haven't even gotten together yet. For Nick and Jess, they haven't even gotten together yet. So we've got two couples who have like officially decided, yep, we're going to be together. And we've got two couples that they've had a really powerful big moment, but they aren't going to be together yet. But what they have in common, I would say, is that it's a point of no return for all four. They're turning a corner and it's like, we can't undo this. So we have to figure out where do we go from here? Where do we go? from here so where we will go from here we will find out in episode 40 that's right in the meantime what are we talking about next week next week take cover because we are confronting bullies we're gonna watch good times season two episode 24 the lunch money ripoff silver spoons season one episode four me and mr t Everybody Loves Raymond, Season 4, Episode 13, Bully on the Bus, and Hannah Montana, Season 1, Episode 23, Schooly Bully. I do not co-sign the voice with which you said, me and Mr. T. <laughs> you have to say Mr. T, kind of like Mr. T. <laughs> That'll be next time, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Concluded.
Thank you for listening to the Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Thank you.